Father, you are gracious and good. And I think heaven's going to be fun. I'm not sure we'll be be throwing foam snowballs and all that. I think you have a kind of fun that is just amazing. So, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for our flock, the flock that you've accumulated here. And, Lord, there are many needs in our flock, for such a small flock even. There are people facing some relatively difficult times. So we pray you will be with um, our loved ones, those who are ill and struggling. And Lord, we give you the glory in advance for that. More than anything else, God, we pray you will speak through your word today and challenge us and convict us and encourage us because that's what your word does all the time. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we took a fleeting glance at what took place in the upper room when Jesus and his apostles gathered just hours before Christ's crucifixion. And we briefly studied the history of substitutionary, I've been working on that word all week, substitutionary blood sacrifices beginning with Adam and Eve. Then, of course, there was Abraham and Isaac. And then ultimately on Mount Sinai. Is everybody really warm in here? Okay. I'll loan you my jacket. I'm getting there. And these sacrifices were served a couple of purposes. And one of the important purposes it served was it prepared those who were partaking of these sacrifices for, for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was going to be the ultimate sacrifice. We reaffirmed that Christ was not the unexpected victim of a diabolical scheme hatched and carried out by Satan, but rather his death and resurrection was the ordained plan of God that was made before the world began. And by the way, we find biblical proof of this in yet another scripture, 1 Peter 1, 20-21, says this, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why would he do this? So that your faith and hope are in God. So very quickly, Christ willingly went to the cross. Why? Peter tells us, so that our faith and hope would be and rest in God, not the law. And for what purpose? Again, for his glory. Now, God who raised him from the dead gave him glory. So we dare not miss this point. This is really important and very powerful. For God to have intervened in the crucifixion of Jesus in any way would have diminished 
Christ's glory. So when someone says, well, why didn't his father intervene? Why didn't God intervene on behalf of his son? Because it would have diminished his son's glory. We also established that the account of the night was not chronicled by Luke in a historical manner. Therefore, we cannot read the account as if it happened that way, nor were the other Gospels. Last week, we studied up through Luke 22.20, when Jesus makes the following amazing statement. He was saying, as he was serving what we call communion, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he says this, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is, present tense, the new covenant in my blood. That's how powerful the blood of Christ is. So Jesus makes a very plain and uncomplicated statement concerning his identity, which is grounded in his divinity. His identity is grounded in his divinity. You cannot separate who Christ is. Therefore, he is proclaiming to his apostles that he is their Messiah. So that's what we learned last week in a nutshell. So this morning, we will read these scriptures on two different levels. We're going to be in just about the same scriptures today and probably a little bit next week still. But there's different angles to this. So we're going to read the scriptures on two different levels. Number one, we're going to read them to educate ourselves concerning the significance of the old Passover ceremony. It's very significant. Number two, we're going to establish the order to some degree in which the events in the upper room actually occurred. We're going to try to put them in chronological order as best we can. And this, in turn, I believe will do the following. It will better establish the significance of the new covenant of Christ. So we're going to try to educate ourselves on the old Passover and try to get these scriptures in some kind of chronological order so they make a little more sense. And through that, establish the significance of the new covenant of Christ. We're not going to get through all of that today. I know that probably shocks you, but we're going to work through it. So the significance of the old Passover ceremony. John MacArthur pulled information from a lot of resources, and he did us a great favor by taking it down to two paragraphs. I know you're thankful for that. This is what he says. The centerpiece of this richly symbolic meal is a Seder. Seder means order. The, signi- the centerpiece of this richly symbolic meal is the, se- the order, the Seder plate. On the Seder plate, there are five or six different Passover foods, each symbolizing a unique element of the Exodus story. At various points in the Seder, Participants partake in these different foods to tangibly reenact the events of the Exodus. When the Israelites learned that the Pharaoh had agreed to let them leave Egypt, they did not have time to bake bread for their journey, lest Pharaoh change his mind, which he did. They quickly made unleavened dough and baked it on their backs in the sun, also called the bread of affliction, symbolizes the hardship of slavery and the Jewish people's hasty transition to freedom. Very interesting, don't you think? 
How can we get this bread baked the quickest and still get everything accomplished that we need to get accomplished? Well, they put the bread on their backs and let the sun bake it while they were doing everything else. So the Passover celebration was filled with rituals and represented God's involvement in the nation of Israel, which included, and thank you for John MacArthur for all that, delivering them from their enemies. The Passover celebration celebrated God delivering them from their enemies and disciplining them when they disobeyed. His involvement on a spiritual level was also celebrated. He claimed them as his people and gave them a separate identity by way of placing an irreversible mark upon the men of his chosen people. He's saying, the men who have this mark are undeniably mine. They belong to me. And then he established the law through which he revealed his character. Many purposes for the Ten Commandments and the, and the other 600. But one of them is this. It didn't take very long for Satan to establish counterfeit kingdoms. And all of these gods that were created from man had to be separated from who Yahweh was claiming to be. And one of the ways he did that is he said, my character is different. As a matter of fact, the laws that God gave to his people are almost reversed from the laws of the other gods. And proof of this can be seen just by reading through them. The Ten Commandments, for example. Humanity finds them very restrictive. And I would say that humanity also finds them very condemning. But they represent who God is. And by the way, if you receive Jesus Christ, they're not condemning. But if you don't have Jesus, they are condemning. Because you cannot possibly obey them all. And Jesus says, just in case you can, if you even think them, you've sinned. So when they gathered to celebrate the Passover, all of these things played a role in their collective experience. And although God commanded them to establish a festival to memorialize the freedom he had granted them, (coughs) that was part of his command when he told them they were going to leave Egypt, he said, now I want you to establish a festival, yearly festival, as a memorial to what I've done for you here in Egypt. So they did what he commanded. The problem was, Passover had become little more than an Independence Day type of celebration. You know, we have things that once meant a great deal to us, and if you do those things enough without thought as to why we are doing those things, they not only become mundane, they become a little bit oppressive. That is part of the problem, if not the major problem, with legalism. It looks great on the outside. And people who try to keep the law out of fear of losing their salvation, I would say they have a relationship of fear with God. Not necessarily a relationship based upon love. I'm not saying they don't love God. I am saying this. If you fear the wrath of God, and that is your sole purpose for being obedient to God, I don't think you have the kind of relationship with your Heavenly Father that He wants. So what had happened was that 
as they began to form these festivals, they became, they became more and more elaborate. So we're going to start in Exodus, and we're going to listen to the directions God gives his people before they celebrate the first Passover. I'm sorry I couldn't include all these scriptures, but all the references are there. Exodus 12, 11 through 13 says this, Here is how you must eat as you're preparing to leave. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. Now remember, he put a distinguishing mark on the men a long time ago. Irreversible. He said it would be a distinguishing mark for you. What's the mark? Blood. I will pass over you. No plague will among you. Um, no plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, right here, I have to stop and fix something that I said last week, because as I thought about it on the way home, and I never stop thinking about what I say on the way home or for the. Um, I made this statement. I asked this question. When they put the lamb's blood on on the doorposts and the lintel, whose blood did that signify? And many of you said the blood of Christ. And by the way, that is correct. Absolutely correct. The point I was trying to make was the blood they put on the doorposts would have been their blood other than Christ. In other words, God demands our blood unless we have the blood of Christ that covers. So I think the way I said it last week was kind of confusing, and I'm sorry about that. Let's just make it another point. The blood that was on the doorpost and the lintel of the homes in Egypt represented the blood of Jesus Christ, period. So God was preparing His people for a swift and powerful judgment upon all who were not covered by the blood of Lamb would suffer. He was sending plagues. And this was the final plague. And these were his instructions. Be ready to go. Have your bags packed, your shoes on, your affairs in order. And do not dawdle. Dawdle is a favorite word around our house because we have people that dawdle in our home. And we say, we need to get this done. And we just kind of dawdle about. And we get it done at some point. He says, don't do that. He says, you need to prepare to leave. This is not your home. Egypt is not your home. Can you see the connection here to what God instructs of us today? So by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, Passover had worked its way into a seven-day combination of the Passover and Unleavened Bread Festival. Not that this was a sin, but it is fairly accurate portrayal of a people who had forgotten the sense of the urgency of obedience. I want to repeat that phrase, if I may. There should be a sense of urgency concerning our obedience to God. And they had forgotten. See, when you have been enslaved for 400 years and all of your privileges have been removed... And you are working to the point of death. 
And you're saying, God, where are you? God, where are you? If you're going through something and that is, that's manifesting itself into your life, and you say, God, where are you? God, where are you? God says this, I am here and the time is coming when I am going to act. You need to be ready. And that's exactly what he was saying to the Israelites in Egypt and exactly what he's saying to us now. There is a story of a young soldier during the Civil War who, when pitching his tent in the field for the first time, was pounding the stakes very deeply in the ground. He had tied those ropes on and they had stakes and he was using whatever he could and he buried those stakes very deeply in the ground. A sergeant came along and said, Son, don't drive the stakes too deep. We never know when we will receive an order to move on. You have to be able to pack up your tent and march. It's a good story. See, there should likewise be a sense of urgency in our obedience to God today. God could call us home at any time, by the way. Or He may call us elsewhere in His service. To what are we clinging that would keep us from obeying Him immediately? Just tell you an area where I fail. I do that a lot, and you're probably wondering a lot about me. Don't worry about it. It's not worth it. But here's the thing. I'm, I'm not a good planner. I'm a good dreamer. And all the people leaders should go, hey, Kanamba. I'm a good dreamer. And if I really believe in something, I can get things moving and motivated. <clears throat> and I can even carry them on for a while. But I'm not a good planner. And probably if, if this church has suffered at the hands of of my leadership, it's probably in that area. Men, the best thing you can do for your family is to prepare them for your departure. Because you may not be here to see your kids grow up. You may not be here to be with your wife. You may not be here to carry the bills. You may not be here to do a lot of things. It's something I struggle with, always have. What are we doing? What are we invested in that would keep us from obeying God immediately? Can I tell you what I believe one of the greatest deterrents for serving in our churches is today? It's our obsession about our age. That's what I think one of the greatest deterrents of serving is. By and large, the church is growing older, you guys. Fewer young people are involved in organized church and if they are, they're going to a single peer church where they're all pretty much the same age. Many of them are in the same generation and do not have the benefit of wisdom from their elders. There are no elders. So, who is to carry the torch? Us. This generation that is represented here for the most part. God neither mentions a minimum nor a maximum age that limits our service to Him. As a matter of fact, some of you have more to offer than you did when you were 20 and 30 and 40. As a matter of fact, I hope you all have more to offer when you were 10, 20, or 30, or 40 years old. Because if you don't, you haven't matured very much. It may be more tiring or less comfortable. Or we may be a bit more anxious about serving. 
But not serving God is never an option. Here is a warning sign for us. Our excitement that centers upon ministry should never consist strictly of our memories of the good old days. All of us older people know this song by Carly Simon. It's called Anticipation. And the phrase that fades that song out, these are the good old days. And if we don't recognize that these are the good old days, we tend to sit back because I've paid my dues. I'm not as healthy. I don't feel as good. I don't have the energy. By the way, all of those things are are right. Be excited now for what God is calling you to do now. Be active. I think we have that in our church. We have some active people. It's a good lesson. How deep are your stakes in this world? So we're going to move on to Luke 22, verse 14. You see, yeah, we've, we've heard that before, and indeed you have. We're not going to stay there very long. Luke 22:14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again, that's implied, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then in Luke twenty-two seventeen, he says this, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. So we see in Luke twenty-two seventeen that he lifts a cup, gives thanks, and instructs them to divide its contents among themselves. They are to share this cup. We do it differently here. We have little tiny cups and we have little pieces of bread. And that's okay because it's symbolic. It's symbolic. But what Jesus was doing is he was saying, this is the same cup. We're all family. We're a community. And the same with the bread. And just a quick word about the cups and the meal. There were four cups that would be lifted during the traditional Passover meal. So this is where we're trying to educate ourselves into the Passover and what they did at the Passover and why it meant something. These cups of wine were traditionally diluted two-part water to one-part alcohol because they were passing four cups. Now, some, some Christians would like to go out and choose the wine off the rack that tastes the best. And, that, and you know, that's, that's between you and God. That's not what this was here. This was not recreation. So two parts water to one part alcohol, one part wine. So this is what Jesus did that night. Jesus raises the first cup. We read that the evening began by them reclining at the table. And after they had reclined at the table, Jesus gave a very general prayer of thanksgiving, at which time Jesus introduces the first cup of which they all shared. This is called the cup of... Now, after he shared that, there were three pieces of that meal that they partook of. Before they did that, there was a ceremonial cleansing. They dipped their hands in a basin of water. By the way, Pontius Pilate would do that. Washes his hands of this. didn't work. He's accountable. They dipped their hands in a basin of water. This was done for hygienic reasons because it was a dusty atmosphere. They didn't have sinks and water fountains all over the place as well as for ceremonial reasons. This was to symbolize an inward cleansing of the soul and making oneself right with God. 
Jesus raises the cup, gives thanks, and they have the ceremonial cleansing. The second thing they do is they, they eat bitter herbs. Now, the bitter herbs symbolize the bitterness of being in slavery in Egypt for all those centuries. There would be pieces of bread also dipped in a paste made out of fruits and nuts, kind of ground together into a brown paste. They would dip pieces of bread in the herbs and the paste and eat that, reminiscing about the bitterness of the people of God in captivity before God set them free. So we have God raising the first cup, there's a ceremonial cleansing, and then there's partaking of the bitter herbs. The next thing is the singing of Hillel. Now the Hillel consisted of Psalms 113 through 118. So we can go through and sing those if you want to. I don't know what the melodies were. But after this, they sang the first two, typically, 113 and 114. Raises the cup, ceremonial cleansing, eating bitter herbs, and, and the singing of Psalms 113 and 14. And then Jesus raises the second cup. And here, the father of the family, or the head of the table, traditionally, would do something they call, and I think I have this right, the Haggadah, or the Haggadah. And it is an explanation of the meaning of all that they were doing. So if you were a family, the father would take the lead in that. He would say, the reason we're doing this is because all of these things represent this, and we want to remember these things for the great thing God has done for us. And this is the main meal, and it included eating the Paschal, which means Passover lamb. Now, word about the Passover lamb. It could be no more than one year old. It had to be without blemish. And no bone could be broken. Typically, the lamb would come in, they would push it over on its side, and they would tie all the feet together with run rope. And that's how they would sacrifice the Paschal lamb. It had to be without blemish. The entire lamb must be eaten or otherwise burned. So they roasted with the entrails inside. It was common that 10 to 20 people would gather together to eat the lamb. It was to be roasted only, no boiling. In the upper room that night, there was Jesus and his 12 apostles, so there were 13 people within that 10 to 20. As a matter of fact, in, um, in Exodus, there was directions to the family. If your family is so small, you cannot eat the entire lamb, go to your family next door and see if you can work it out there. But do not leave any part of the Passover lamb unaccounted for. So Jesus raises the first cup, he raises the second cup, and there is the eating of the Passover lamb. And the portion of the Passover meal would have consumed most of the evening. It would have lasted for as I read it, almost every resource, hours and hours. Now, traditionally, during this time, people talked and listened and were taught the Scriptures and perhaps even debated and argued just a bit. This was central to their culture, their religion, and their family or community unity. It was a time of conversation. And by the way, it was no different that night with Jesus. 
They talked, they listened, Jesus taught, they debated, and they argued. Remember what they argued about? Who of them was the greatest at Passover? We'll get to that next week. Then Jesus raises the third cup. Now it is here that Luke tells us that Jesus said and did the following. In Luke 22, verses 18 and 19, this is what he said. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Now, that's very familiar to us if we've been in church for any length of time at all. There is something that I think is interesting to point out many times, and I may have said it myself at communion, this is my bread, this is my body which has been broken for you. That's not what it says, because his body was not broken. This is my body which is what? Given for you. I know what people mean when they say broken for you, because he was, he was suffering. But there was no broken bone in Jesus. So, do with that as you wish. I thought it was just kind of interesting. So Jesus is saying, I will not eat or drink this until uh, the kingdom. And when he, likewise, when he gave the cup, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is a proclamation that this cup, the third cup, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He used the third cup to make that proclamation. This is interesting in that there was traditionally a fourth cup. And Jesus chose not to acknowledge the fourth cup. And you want to find... You, here's a task. Try to figure out what that means. This is shrouded in mystery. However... The very last thing I read, no, I couldn't have read that on Tuesday. I had to wait until Friday. The very last thing I read was, I think it makes the most sense. After he gave the, after he drank the last cup, and then they sang Psalms 115 and 118, and that was typically done after the fourth cup. So why would he do that? Well, the absent fourth cup and the old covenant God lets us know that the redemption which is ours is still not fully complete. We must await the future with hope of Messiah's coming, for He alone can transform us fully into the holy people He has ordained us to be. It comes from graceintorah.com. Jesus certainly would not have included this final cup as He was indeed fulfilling that prophecy. They no longer had to wait. It is interesting that Jesus was twice offered wine after that while suffering on the cross. He refused the first one because it had gall in it, which was a form of myrrh, and it would have dulled his pain. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-three says this, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. It would have dulled the pain. Jesus must fully suffer for our sins. The second offering of wine, John 21, 28 says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said in order to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Get that. Why did he say, I thirst? Was he thirsty? 
tells us why he said it, in order to fulfill the Scripture. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he took it, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is of further interest that this wine was offered to him on the cross by a hyssop branch. Because in Exodus 12, 22, when God was instructing them how to put blood on the doorpost, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lentil. So the last wine Christ was offered was fulfilling that picture of being offered his blood, so to speak, the wine with a hyssop branch. Isn't God great in details? So we see the importance of the Passover, first from Israel's perspective, and that it was a memorial to all that God had done for them. And secondly, it was important to God that it was pointing to and preparing Israel for the arrival of their Messiah. Same Passover served both purposes. Israel looked back on the grace and the deliverance from Egypt by God, and God was looking forward to the crucifixion of His Son. And both were a blessing. One pointed back to their rescue, the other pointed forward to their rescue. As much as Israel may have taken for granted all that God had done for them by freeing them from slavery in Egypt, I wonder how much we unwittingly take the cross for granted in the same manner. When I think of those 12 men reclining at that table in the upper room with the Son of God, with the second person in the Trinity. 100% holy, 100% man. Having poured His holiness into the servant, Jesus. I know beyond a doubt that I would have been just as unaware of what what was taking place. How do I know this? Well, because it is true of me today. Because I'm taking him for granted right now. There is no way I can claim to fully appreciate all that Christ has sacrificed for me and continue to disrespect him through my disobedience. There is no way I can fully grasp the holiness of Jesus Christ and still pursue my sin over and over and over again. It's impossible. I do not fully grasp Jesus Christ or what He's done or what He continues to do. There is no way I can claim to fully appreciate who Jesus is and then approach Him as if He is anything less than 100% holy. 
And I am without excuse concerning my ignorance of God's Word because the New Covenant, the New Testament of the Holy Bible is readily available and the Holy Spirit, the interpreter, lives within me. Neither was true for the apostles at the Lord's table. These are the things we have. We have more information about the person of Jesus and the Trinity and the power and the holiness of God than these 12 men had. I am without excuse concerning my ignorance of God's Word because not only do I fail to read it, I fail to study it. How about you? Where are you in this story? I know where I am. I do not know where you are. You know where you are. For what are you without excuse? Have you received Jesus yet? If not, you are without excuse for not receiving Jesus. Why? Because you've heard the gospel. Unless you have no knowledge whatsoever of who Jesus is or what the Bible says about Jesus, can I tell you that Jesus is pursuing you? He's pursuing you. As a believer, are you trying to live two separate lives? Well, then you are without excuse. Let me make that personal. We are without excuse. Why are we without excuse? Second Peter 1.3, By His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Now, is God lying to us? Or is this true? We have received all of this by coming to know Him the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence, not by means of our understanding the Bible. He does this by means of drawing us to himself through his glory and excellence. Even before the Bible was penned, Paul says, we are without excuse in Romans. But there is hope. Paul in Romans. By the way, we're going to study Romans. Uh, not soon. Because it will never stop. You think Luke is long? But Romans is such a rich book. Um, you all have been patient. So let me read this hope to you. Paul is coming to terms with who he is in the flesh. And Romans 7, 24 says, This wretched man that I am. And he's a believer now. He's a believer. You ever feel like a wretched person is a believer? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, 
I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. In my mind, in your soul as a believer, you want, you crave to serve Jesus Christ. You crave to throw all of the sin out of your life, and you have to be tormented at times. Are you tormented at times? And he said, Paul says, I get that. Because I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What's the law of God? God's love. What are the two what are the two most important laws, Jesus? Oh, that's easy. Love my dad and love each other. That's the law. That isn't what they expected to hear. Which one of the ten is the most important? Which one of the six hundred is the most important? God says, it's easy. Love my Father. Love me. And love one another. This is what Paul is saying. And then Romans 8, 1. I'm going to go back and read these two verses so you get it all in context. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There, there is therefore now no condemnation. For who? Those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. I know some of you are going, too much. Uh, Pick up a Bible when you go home. And read Romans 1, 8, 1, chapter 8, 1 through 4. And he does this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul, I think one of the greatest apostles to ever live. R.C. Sproul was somewhere... And he was talking about this a little bit. And he gave this illustration. He had, he had a man come up on stage and say, you stand over there. And then he come over here and he had another man stand over here. And he said, now that's Adolf Hitler. And this is Jesus. That's Adolf Hitler. And this is Jesus. He asked another man to come up. And he said, this is the Apostle Paul. In God's eyes, where does the Apostle Paul stand? Right next to Adolf Hitler. Does that shock you? That's how much we do not understand the holiness of God. The holiness of God. It stunned me. And then, of course, being selfish, I thought, I wonder where I stand. And I just put that thought right out of my mind. It's who Jesus is. It is about what he did. But if what he did was not done by who he is, 
it wouldn't have mattered. See, you can do all kinds of things. And people may laud you. You may feel better about yourself. You may want to give to the, the people, the people that don't have so much. You may want to help other people. All of those things may make you feel better. But unless it's coming from the heart of Jesus Christ, it counts for nothing. Nothing. As churches, we have to ask ourselves why we do what we do. Why are we investing where we are investing? Is it because God has called us to do that? Or is there another church that could do it better because that's really their calling? Prayer. Prayer. God, you are beautiful. There is no part of you that is not holy. I thank you for your grace and your patience. I thank you for your grace with our pride at times. Thank you for your mercy as we grieve you. Lord, mostly, I thank you for who you are and I thank you for Romans 8.1. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I invite you to receive Christ this morning. If you are here and you have not received, I invite you to receive Christ. And how is that done? I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to repeat that in your heart and in your mind, and you're praying to God, that's fine. You don't have to say it out loud. Father, I believe you are who the Bible says you are. And I believe that Jesus Christ is your one and only Son. And I believe that you sent him and he came willingly to be born into poverty through a virgin. And I believe, Lord, that he ministered and he walked among us. And I believe, Lord Jesus, that you know my name. And I believe that you did go to the cross and you suffered on that cross for all humanity and you died on that cross and you, were, and you rose from the dead. And Father, I believe this. Lord Jesus, I believe this. Holy Spirit, I believe this, that it is only through you that there is salvation. And Lord, I may not understand it all. That doesn't mean I cannot receive it all. And I receive you. And if you prayed that prayer, you had never prayed it before. If you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family. And we love you. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.